What a great song that is. I'm becoming more and more convinced that uh, the day we meet Jesus, we'll discover that He is so far bigger than we'd ever know. He is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more awesome than we had ever, ever even dreamed of, of imagining. And uh, I can't wait for that. Uh, I found a story I thought it would be uh, kind of funny to share this with you. Um, there's a couple of two little boys. What do they have? What do little boys do? <laughs> Get in trouble. Well, these boys were ages 8 and 10, and they were excessively mischievous. They're always getting into trouble, and their parents knew that if any mischief occurred in their town, their sons were probably involved somehow. Their boy's mother heard that a clergyman in town had been successful in disciplining children, so she asked if he would speak with her boys. The clergyman agreed, but asked to see them individually. So the mother sent her eight-year-old first in the morning with the older boy to see the clergyman in the afternoon. The clergyman, a huge man with a booming voice, said to the younger boy, down, or sat the younger boy down and asked him sternly, Where is God? The boy's mouth dropped open, but he made no response, sitting there with his mouth hanging open wide-eyed. So the clergyman repeated the question to an, in an even sterner tone, Where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer. So the clergyman raised his voice even more and shook his finger in the boy's face and bellowed, Where is God? The boy screamed and bolted from the room, ran directly home and dove into his closet, slamming the door behind him. When his older brother found him in the closet, he asked, What happened? The youngest brother gasped for breath and replied, We're in big trouble this time, dude. God's missing. They think we did it. I find it interesting that our first instinct when we get into trouble is to run and hide. And uh, and as we're going to see today, when we, we, we go back to that original event, that's exactly what happened. Um, this, this message and the one that's going to come in a couple of weeks are really the two most important talks we're going to have for the summer. It, um, it really begins to, I think... Um, is the heart of what, what the gospel is about and the heart of what we're trying to accomplish in, in becoming this community of grace. Um, today we, we talk more about the problem of man and, and really what are man's great struggles and what's he up against. And You might be wondering why are we at this again. This is our, our really second or third week that we've been talking about this. Um, and yet we need to talk about this. We need to have a, a good, solid understanding of man's problem. If we don't understand the problem, then the answer is going to be meaningless. And, and the depth that you understand the problem is the depth that you'll under, understand and appreciate the answer. So we're going to spend one more week trying to understand exactly what man's problem is. And then next time, we'll get to see what God's great solution to all this was. I had a, I had a man in my office not too long ago um, come in and and uh, he met with me and he said, I'm only going to have positive confessions from here on in. And I'm only going to talk about positive things, good things. So I asked him how he's doing. I'm doing great, doing wonderful. Well, he hadn't slept for a week. But he decided he's only going to focus on the positive. And I'm thinking, this is just ridiculous, this thing. It's absolutely stupid. Because, I mean, could you imagine the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda? Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you want to be well? The lame man looking at him being lame for 37 years says, Well, huh, 
I've never been better. In fact, I can't even imagine getting any better. I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. Everything's wonderful. I don't need anything. And Jesus looking at him, really? <laughs> really? You don't need to be well? We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with where we're at and what we're struggling with. And if we're willing to do that, then we can receive from God what His answer is for us, what He has in store for us. And so, what we're going to do today is spend one more week understanding the problem, and then we can start to, to see what God's great solution is. Amen? Alright, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, You are up to some incredible things, Father. You are doing a deep work in our hearts. And all You ask us is to trust You to do it. And so, Father, we come here and we look forward with great anticipation to what You're going to accomplish. I pray, Father, that we'll have an understanding of what took place thousands of years ago in the garden and how that has ramifications that still go on today. And that we begin to see how Your Son, Jesus Christ, has made salvation possible. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we, we talked about the glory of man. That man was created with glory. Uh, it wasn't an intrinsic glory, meaning it wasn't a glory that was found within man, but rather it was a derived glory. It was the glory from God because He was made in the image of God. And so the glory man had was the very glory of God reflected in all of creation through man. So if creation wanted to see what God was like, they just needed to look at God, look at man and they saw what God was like. That doesn't mean man was God, but he reflected the image of God. He reflected who God was like. And so man could see that. And all creation could see that. And so the result was man was created for an intimate uh, um, a deep dependent relationship upon Jesus Christ, upon God. He was meant to walk with God. He was meant to live with God as a result of that. But that all fell to pieces at the, at the, the garden when man fell. So we're going to start with um, in Genesis 2. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start with the last verse, verse 25, and then skip down into chapter 3. So Genesis 2 and verse 25. And it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its tree and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, which, uh, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to, me, to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. We said last week that this is one of the, the two greatest events in, um, 
in the history of man. It's where everything unraveled and then the second greatest, the cross, which we'll look at next time, is where God put it all back together. But I, I want to start with that verse at the end of chapter 2 where it says that Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. In, uh, in verse 25 there, it's, it's almost like a, an, an appendix. It's almost so easy to, to pass over. And, and if you've read that verse and just skipped past it, you know, I, I can't blame you for doing so. I mean, it, it follows the, one of the, the great stories of the Bible, creation. How God spoke everything into existence. How He made man and then He made woman. And He, he brings woman to man and man's response is, Whoa, man, this is incredible. And He's just, just awed by this, this beautiful creature. And He said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is the one for me. And He, he receives her. And then it's followed by the, the great temptation that we just read. And so there's these two great stories and in the middle is just this little verse that almost seems to be, you know, out of place. It doesn't seem to fit the flow of the passage. And yet it's such an important verse. It's the last thing God tells us about creation before the fall. It's the last thing God mentions about paradise, this Garden of Eden. He says that man and woman were naked and they're not ashamed. And in that, it's so, there's such a, a, a fundamental and such a profound statement. You see, we have to understand what does it mean to be naked. But you didn't think you were coming to church to talk about nakedness, but yet here we are. So there's three kinds of nakedness, or three states of nakedness. First, there's nude. When you're nude, you're, you're, you have no clothes on, you're naked, but there's nothing, nothing about it. It's just you're, you're nude. Like when you're in the shower, you're nude. When you're, when you're getting changed you're nude. When you have a little baby who is naked, that, that baby is nude. When you're born, you're born nude. And so that's, that's the first state of nakedness. It's just nude. The second state is buck naked. And you have to say it that way. And when you are buck naked, you are naked and doing something you shouldn't be doing. You are either streaking across the field for all to see. You are running in the rain. You are uh, mooning someone down the 401. You are buck naked. And I'm pretty sure I don't have to go into much detail looking at this crowd. Uh, what buck naked is all about. The third state is just naked. And here you are completely exposed. You are completely laid bare. There is nothing hiding. You, you have nothing hidden. You are completely exposed to anyone and everyone around. And that's the state that Adam and Eve were. They were naked. They were completely exposed. And it's far more than just that they didn't have any clothes on. Because later on when Adam talks about having any clothes on, he uses a slightly different word for that when he says we were naked and so we hid. Instead, they were, they were laid bare. They were completely exposed to one another, not just physically, but in their soul and in their spirit. So Adam saw everything about Eve and Eve saw everything about Adam and they were completely laid bare before all of creation. And here's the incredible thing. They were not ashamed. There was no shame whatsoever in all of creation. Completely naked, completely exposed, nothing hidden, and no shame. And you see, shame is one of the great effects as a result of the fall. And as a direct result of man's sin in that garden, shame entered this world along with fear, along with death, and, and along with sin. And it has ever since 
crippled mankind. It, has, it is a giant that has come to waste destruction on every single person that's walked the face of this earth. Bar none. Sure, there are some people that have had greater degrees of shame and struggle with shame in different ways. But we all deal with shame in some way. In fact, I've come to believe that all sin is a result of our sense of shame. Our sense of, of needing something, of lacking something, and of hiding something. And so we go to sin as a result of it. So what is shame? What's shame all about? Well, there's a difference between guilt and shame. And I think sometimes we've, we've, um, we've mixed the two up. We often say, uh, or have heard, maybe you have said this as a kid, or say to your own kids, you ought to be ashamed of yourself about something. And really what we're saying is you ought to feel guilty. You've done something wrong. You're a buck naked streaking across the yard and you ought to feel guilty about that. And that's, that's one thing. There's a guilt. Guilt is that I've done something wrong. Guilt is I did something wrong. I, it has to do with my behavior, my actions, what I have accomplished, what I've done. But shame is a far bigger giant. Shame attacks your personhood. Shame attacks who you think you are. So where guilt says, I've done something wrong, shame says, I am wrong. Where guilt says, I do something bad, shame says, I am bad. And shame is a monster that has plagued us all. Um, like I said before, before the, the man sinned in the garden, there was no shame. There was nothing to hide. They felt no, no sense of wrong in themselves. In fact, they were so confident and comfortable that they could be completely bare naked in front of everybody. And there was no shame whatsoever. But ever since, we've been struggling with it. We've been terrified of it. I find it interesting that all of mankind shares the same nightmare. Any ideas what that same nightmare is that every person probably has had? Dream of, of waking up or, or, or in your dream, I guess, you, you show up to school or show up to work or you show up to church maybe and what are you wearing? Nothing. Nothing. And it is frightening, it is terrifying, it is tormenting because you're naked and nobody else is not. And why is that so frightening and terrifying and shame-filled? Because what are people seeing? They're seeing you exposed. They're seeing you naked. They're seeing you without any hiding or any covering and you are completely exposed to people. And that's man's, one of man's greatest fears is to be exposed. Or I find it also interesting that when it comes to giving advice to public speakers that are nervous, they often say, you know, if the, if the person, if you're nervous, just, just picture your audience naked. And, um, and that will, you know, somehow make it all better. That, um, that the audience is naked and, and they have something now to feel uncomfortable with, but you, you're not, so you're, you're okay. You have nothing to hide, but oh, they should. And so that's supposed to give you a sense of confidence that you're hidden and they can't see who you really are. The sense of being naked, this, this uncomfortableness with being exposed with people terrifies us. It's frightening to us. The idea that I could be completely exposed. And yet, with Adam and Eve, they didn't feel that. I mean, it's so hard for us to imagine what that would be like. Because except for brief, tiny glimpses of grace, we've never had that sense and freedom from complete shame. That, that sense that, that I have nothing to hide. 
You can see everything about me. All, every, everything I've done, everything I've said, everything I've thought, everything that's gone on, and I have nothing to hide. We experienced that for probably tiny moments here on this earth. And yet Adam and Eve, that's all they knew. And the only hope that we have to experience that is to understand why they could experience that. Why they had such freedom from shame. Why there was no shame. And it's all rooted in their connection and their communion with God. You see, in God, they found everything they needed. Everything they required for life was found in God. All they needed to do was just receive that from God. And so one person provided all they needed. And so life was really, really simple for man. It was all rooted in God. But that raises some some basic questions, I think, is what were the basic needs of man? What were the basic requirements of man? You see, man has always had needs. It's just that man wasn't always in need. In the garden he had needs, but all his needs were satisfied, and so he wasn't in need of things. But he had needs. Man was created with basic needs. We have basic needs of our bodies, such as food, water, air, um, shelter, warmth. Stuff that our body physically needs, and without it, our body will die. And so, a need is something that is, is linked to life. But if that's all that man needed, if man needed nothing more, then um, uh, what's that? Solitary confinement wouldn't be the, the worst punishment on earth. The idea that you are separated has something profound on, on the psyche of man. You see, there's other needs that man has. And anyone with a toddler or deals with adults that act like toddlers knows that man needs peace, needs patience. He needs love for other people. And I start with love for other people because too often we start with love to me. And, and we look at other people and look at the people in this room and say, you are here to love me. And I want you to know that thinking is a product of the fall. It was not that way in the garden. Adam wasn't there, or Eve wasn't there, so Eve could love Adam and make Adam feel whole and healthy and loved. He had that from God. Instead, Eve was there so Adam could love her. It was a love to give to other people. And that's where it starts with. That doesn't mean I don't need love. In fact, I need love, I need worth, I need acceptance, I need security. That is the deepest, most profound needs of mankind. And you take that away from man and he will die. He can have everything else, but if he doesn't know he's loved, doesn't know he's accepted, doesn't know he has worth, doesn't know he's secure, he will experience death. And so that's life to a man. And God provided that to man. God was the very source of that to mankind. And so for Adam, life was really, really simple. Love equals God. Acceptance equals God. Worth equals God. Security equals God. Peace equals God. Acceptance equals God. Anything he needed, he just found in God. So if we could simplify it, Life equals God. If he ever needed it, that's all he needed to go to. That's all he needed to do to find it. And so man's formula is really simple. But it all fell apart with what theologians refer to as the fall of man. When man ate from the wrong tree in the garden. I don't know if the fall of man is is the best definition or, or title to explain what happened. I like what another pastor, a man named Frank Friedman, called it. He called it the great gasp. 
I think that's a far more descriptive event of what took place in the garden. See, I want you to imagine a fish for a moment. Fish swimming in the ocean. Does a fish in the ocean breathe oxygen? Yes, he does. He takes oxygen that's found in the water and he breathes it in through his gills and the gills extract the oxygen from the water, expelling the excess water and he's breathing the oxygen. And that's about all I know about biology. That's about it. But that's how, he's, that's how he can breathe. So he can breathe oxygen underwater. And as long as he's under that water, he is all, he's surrounded by the oxygen. He just naturally breathes it in. It's just so simple, so easy. Just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And that's probably what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden. You see, they are surrounded by God. They are surrounded by His love, by His worth, by His acceptance, by His security. And if they ever felt the need for it, what did they need to do? Breathe it in. It's probably as natural for them as breathing is for you and I. I'm loved. I'm acceptable. I'm secure. It was that simple for them. They were surrounded by it. But imagine now you take that fish and you, you, you snatch the fish from the water and you sit it on the deck of a boat. What's going to happen to that fish now? What's it going to begin to do? Flop around. Flip and flop. Desperately trying to get back into the water. Why? Because it can't breathe anymore. Now, have you removed oxygen from the environment? No. Oxygen still in, is in the environment. But it can no longer receive it. It is therefore disconnected from that oxygen. And it is beginning to suffocate. It's beginning to die. And so it flips and flops, desperately seeking to find life that it might avoid death. And that's what, what it must have been for Adam and Eve when they left. When they sinned, sorry. The moment they sinned, they were disconnected. They were cut off from God. They were separated from God. It's not that God disappeared. He's still there. But they can no longer receive from God. They can no longer receive His love, His acceptance, His worth, His security. And for the very first time in all of creation, man was in need of those things. He was desperate for those things. And he gasped. <gasps> Am I loved? Am I acceptable? Am I okay? And immediately, what was the answer to all those questions? No. No, I am not. I'm no longer acceptable. For in choosing life apart from man, or sorry, for in choosing life apart from God, he is now separate from God. He's disconnected from God. And thinking that he would find life, he found death instead. But he still needs life. He still needs acceptance. And so his formula for life becomes very, very difficult. Very, very different. Now life is rooted in what he can somehow find in who? In other people. Where life before was simple, if life equals God, becomes now something far more difficult and far more complicated. Because life now is based on what I can do and what I don't do. Plus, what Joel thinks about what I do and I don't do. Plus, what Brian thinks about what I do and don't do. Plus, what Ron thinks about what I do and don't do. Plus, what, what everybody else in this room thinks about what I do and don't do. And so now my formula for life is, is limitless. 
only limited by the number of people I, that I know and that I value their opinion. And we begin to, to look for life in everybody else. But you see, that's, that's made all the more miserable because Ryan's expectations of me will offend Joel. Because these two people think differently. In order to get Ron to like me, Joel will hate me. And Brian over here, I don't even know what Brian wants from me. His, his thinking and his opinions and standards, they're forever changing and undefined. And so I'm just running around striving to please Brian. And I never know. Am, am I doing enough? Am I okay? Am I, am I alright now? And it's, and it's, and it's a struggle. We'll do a private testimony later, so. But it's just, but it's just running around trying to appease people, trying to find life and acceptance in people. And it's never going to be enough. It's never going to satisfy. Because they have differing opinions, opinions I don't even know. And I strive and I strive and I strive and it's never enough. And then I get saved. And now I add God to this mix. Now I've got to please God with what I do and I don't do. And sometimes I know what God wants and other times I don't know what He wants. And, and then I'm striving and then I discover what's God's ex- expectation. What his, what's His standard of me? Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there goes that. I thought Brian was tough to please. And so now I got to please myself and please others, and I got to please God, and and enough is never enough. And so it's a forever a struggle, forever striving. And so I begin to strive and struggle to look to clean up my behavior, to hide my shame, to reduce my sins, to act right, to look good, to have white teeth just so you might accept me. I mean, it goes so far, it's so ridiculous that I'm supposed to have clean underwear on so in case I die, I'll be found with clean underwear. Because God forbid I ever be found with dirty underwear. Because what would that say about me or more importantly, what would that say about my parents? I mean, how ridiculous is this? That I'm dead and i got to worry about what underwear I have on. Chances are, if I die in an accident, it's going to not be pretty. I'm just saying, clean or not clean, it's not going to be pretty. But yet, I need to worry about that somehow. Because I need to somehow please other people. Because if I can please you, if I can get your love, then I'll be okay. And what I have done is I have elevated all of mankind into God. You now play the role of God. You determine whether I'm okay or not. Whereas in the garden, Adam and Eve went to God and they could ask Him, Am I okay? And he'd say, yes, you're in my image. Of course you're okay. Now I turn to you guys and I ask you, am I okay? Am I doing enough? Am I acceptable? Am I, am I loved by you? And the answer is, well, for now, maybe or no. And so life becomes a struggle now. A struggle to, to hide myself hide myself from you. And I follow the, the pattern of, of our great first parents, Adam and Eve. I find it amazing that right after they sinned, what did they do? What was their first, their first act? To hide. From who? They hid through making clothes and they hid from each other. Before they hid from, from God, they hid from each other. And so think about it. This is what they do. They, they invent two things. I mean, it's commonplace for us, but there is no such thing as clothing and there is no such thing as sewing. And so they immediately invent sewing and clothing and they sew fig leaves together. 
I mean, that, that's, that's remarkable. That's the in, ingenuity of man right there. He engineers clothes to hide. To hide from each other. You see, Adam's thinking, I'm naked. I am exposed to this person. Now, is it wrong for Adam to be, to be naked with Eve? No. Husband and wife. Naked. With each other. In a garden where nobody else... I mean, no one's coming around because there is nobody else. So, it's good that those two are naked. It's wonderful. And yet, there's something wrong now. Adam begins to think, Am I okay? Am I man enough? Am I acceptable? Is it, is it okay that I'm naked? Will Eve accept me? And the answer to that is, no, I'm not. So I better hide. And Eve begins to think, uh-oh, he sees me. I'm laid bare before him. And what what he thinks about me? Am I feminine enough? Am I beautiful enough? Will he love me? Will I be okay? And the answer to that is no. And so she begins to hide. And they immediately begin to hide from one another. And then God shows up on the scene and then they terrified from, from that and they just go and run behind bushes. You see, a fig leaf might be able to hide from another person, but with God, you need a whole bush. And so they go and jump behind the bush. And God says, where are you? And the answer was, well, we heard you coming and we were terrified because we were naked. And so we hid. We didn't want you to see who we really are. And so shame now grips man's heart and begins to dictate what man does and doesn't do. Everything is done now from the sense of shame. The sense of, of need and, and want and fear that I'm not good enough. So fear, shame, hiding, pretending, striving to be enough, living from a position of lack and want, all these are products of the great gasp. Products of man's sin in the garden. And do not be deceived, for they continue to haunt us today. For you see, we may not wear those fig leaves, but we do something very similar. Our fig leaves we have developed and perfected far more. They're far more sophisticated from the original prototype. We develop many things and many techniques in order to hide myself, to hide my shame, and to milk and manipulate love and acceptance from you. All so I can satisfy my own self. The hope that if you can love me, then maybe I can love myself. If I'm okay with you, then maybe, maybe I got a chance of being okay. And so I use people. I manipulate people. And the Bible calls this kind of living, living according to the flesh. A way that God doesn't only despise because it's sinful, but I think more He despises because it keeps us from Him. It keeps us from getting close to Him. I find it interesting that when Jesus walked the earth, He cursed but one tree. What kind of tree was it? A fig tree. The tree that man used to hide. Now, I'm not saying it was the same tree. Um, but he, he, he cursed a fig tree. And yet it was a fig tree that man used to hide himself. And we see God's declaration of that. I don't want your flesh. I don't want you to live that way. And yet this is what we do. We hide from God behind our flesh. We use things such as control. 
Control is such a popular thing in our society. We fight for control. We're desperate for control. We try to control other people so they don't hurt us. We try to control other people so they can give to us. We try to control other people so we'll have peace and, and we'll, have, we'll have acceptance and we'll be patient. We try to control our kids. We try to control our spouses. We try to control our friends. And yet the reality is we have absolutely no control in this world. None whatsoever. How many people can guarantee that they'll see the sunset tonight? None of you can. You may all die before you get there. And you can't control something that simple as to where you're going to be some 12 hours from now. Then what hope do you have of controlling life? We are out of control. We have zero control whatsoever. And I find it interesting that the one person who has control is God and yet He never tries to force His control on people. And the, one, the group of people that have no control go around trying to control everyone else. But it's all to hide and protect myself. Because if I realize that I'm out of control and you take advantage of me, I might get hurt. If I expose myself to you, you might take advantage of that and you might grip it. You might, might take hold of my heart and crush it. Is what I remember the first week we were together, John saying, but what if I open myself up and I expose myself and I might get hurt? You know what? There are a few things I can guarantee in life, but I can guarantee you will. You will get hurt. Job says, as, as sparks fly upward, man is born for trouble. You will face rejection, I guarantee it. And we are terrified of it. Because that rejection, all it does is it reinforces the shame that I believe about myself. The sense of inferiority, the sense of lack, the sense of I'm not good enough. And so I must hide from that rejection. I must control others around me so I don't face that rejection so that you see me and accept me. Because if you don't, then you just affirm what I believe. Or we use criticism. We criticize those around us in the hope that if I can tear you down, I can lift myself up. Sure, I got problems, but it's a good thing I'm not Matt. Because if I were Matt, then I then I have a lot of problems. I'll tell you more about those later. So we criticize people, point out their faults, point out their their mistakes, so I feel good about myself. I was I was dealing with a man not too long ago. And, and, and trying to talk with him, he would, he would talk about his issues in such a roundabout way that, that any time I got close to him, he would just quickly skirt off and talk about someone else. And then we'd come back and say, well, what, what's going on with you? Yeah, yeah, I got problems, I got problems, but run off and talk about someone else and their issues. And, and he was so skilled. I don't even know if he was recognizing what he was doing, but he was so skilled at defending himself and he was protecting. I could never get close to his heart because he was so terrified that what we would find is something that was shameful. And what I was essentially doing, I was coming up and starting to remove his fig leaf. And he says, oh, don't, don't do that. But look at their fig leaf. Take theirs off. Take their mask away. They got problems. Don't, don't, don't mess with mine because... I don't. I'm afraid to see what's behind there. And so we use shame now to to criticize and protect ourselves. We might turn to idolatry. We may not use idolatry like they did in in biblical times, where they worship Baal and and the other false gods. Instead, we make other people our gods. Because now I'm only okay if you think I'm okay. 
I'm acceptable as long as you think I'm acceptable. And so I turn to the world around me and you become my God. If I'm only loved by you, then I'll be all right. And this idolatry goes so far that men and women begin to marry one another just so they have someone to love them. Sure, they're miserable and they just tear each other at the throat, but, but maybe if we're together, I'll have at least one person to love me. And when that doesn't work and falls apart, then, then we have a child. Because if I have a child, then I have one person that will love me. Sure, for maybe a year and a half. And then they quickly realize that, you know what, I can be a controller too. And I'm my own person. And I want love. And they become the center of the world. And they become a teenager. (laughs) But we look to these people to say, will you love me? And if you love me, then I'll be okay. We turn to other things such as pride or indifference. Pretending that it doesn't bother me. Pretending that it doesn't matter. All the while, it's eating us up inside. Killing us. And you see, all these characteristics you find in a community of good good intentions. In a group of people who are striving to hide their shame and try to get better. But you see, in focusing on our sins and shame and trying to fix our problems, they never get better. They only get worse. Because that shame and hiding the shame, it just multiplies it. It just gets worse. And what happens is we become like mere men, as Paul says to the church of Corinth. We're living as if there is no God. And and we are convinced that if I just work hard enough and find the right person, all my problems will go away and then I'll be finally satisfied. I'll finally have life. If only you got fixed and you got your problems sorted out and you loved me, then, then I'd have peace. Then I'd be patient. Then I'd be loved. And it's never going to happen. Never going to happen that way. And it doesn't need to happen that way. But we're convinced that that's the way. And as Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right unto man, but it's the way of death. And so with our shame, trying to cover it up, trying to get you to love me, to fill up that empty empty hole, I'm just miserable. But thank God. Thank God. He's got something for us. Amen. That He's restored us to what man was intended to be. Now, we don't have time this week to get into the detail it it requires to understand that. So that's what next time is going to be all about. But I'm not going to send you away just on bad news. So I will give you a sneak preview of what's to come. But know this, that all our answers are found in one person, God. That He has restored us to set us free that we might have life in Him. You see, this death that that Adam and Eve brought upon all of mankind, this sin and this shame and this fear, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. He did far more than just come to forgive your sins and get you into heaven someday. If that's your understanding of the Gospel, that is a shallow understanding. It is so much deeper. It is so much more incredible. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it to its full. That you would be abundantly filled with His life. 
that you would be satisfied with His love, with His worth, with His acceptance. He's come to restore us that we might have a life dependent upon Him where we live from Him and live out of His life and His resources. For the God of this universe has declared that your life is worth His own blood. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever realized that? That the blood of God Almighty was shed, was given for you. That is your worth. That is your value. He said, I would rather die than be without you. That's your worth. And so what He has done is He has loved you. He has accepted you. But more than that, He has made you lovable and acceptable. You see, it's one thing to be loved, but it's another thing to be lovable. It's one thing to be accepted. It's another thing to be acceptable. And what God has done is He's made you both. He's made you lovable and He loves you. He's made you acceptable and He accepts you. He's made you worthy and He holds you secure and safe and none of that will ever change, not even for a brief nanosecond. If you are in Christ and you have accepted that, you are in the safest place you could ever be. And so I no longer need to hide. I, don't know, I no longer need to run from people. I no longer need to put on the masks. I don't need to let shame dominate and control me anymore. Because I'm loved. And my formula for life returns to what it was in the garden. God. And if you don't love me, and if you don't accept me, that's unfortunate. It's too bad but my world doesn't come crashing down because I'm loved. I'm loved by Jesus. What can you do to me? What can man do when we're loved by God? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul says, quoting in, uh, in Romans, he quotes from the Old Testament, and find in Romans 9, verse 33, he says, it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and everyone believing on Him shall not be put to shame. It's when we find life in Jesus, when we look to Him, we discover there is no shame. For God knows you. He sees you. You are laid bare before Him. And He says, I find no fault in you. How could He? He's made you pure. He's made you whole. And so we no longer find or no longer have the need for fig leaves. They're gone. You know, I find it so incredible in Genesis chapter 3, we see God already foretelling the cross, pointing to the cross. When He talks to Satan, He says, He curses Satan. He says, the seed of the woman, being Jesus, will come and you will bruise His heel. What event is that referring to? Jesus' death on the cross. Satan bruised his heel. Now, that's a wound, but you can recover from that kind of a wound. And he says, but he, the seed, will crush your head, Satan. That's referring to the resurrection. When Jesus resurrected, he overcame death, he overcame Satan, and he crushed his head. That's incredible that God already in Genesis 3 is foretelling the gospel, is letting us know the answer to come, letting us tell, telling us where restoration will take place at the cross. But He does more than that. You see, He looks at the fig leaves 
and he sees what they're wearing. And then in Genesis 3.21 it says, And for Adam and his wife, Jehovah God made coats of skin and clothed them. Now think about this. They were already covered. They were already clothed. And he looked and he saw the clothing. He saw what they were wearing and he thought, that's just not going to cut it. And it it wasn't, you know, out of some sense of fashion. I mean, could you imagine God looking at that and saying, oh dear, oh, oh, oh myself. I can't believe you're wearing that. That is such last season. That, That is such, I mean, the color is all, all wrong for you. I mean, what were you thinking when you tried that on? The cut, the, the I mean, who sewed that for goodness sake? What, did you do that in the dark? For goodness sake, take that off. I, oh, what were you thinking? Oh, myself, right? I mean, that's not, I mean, it wasn't some sense of, of fashion that God was concerned about. Instead, he took an animal, and what did he do to that animal? He slaughtered it, he sacrificed that animal. The very first death that all mankind ever saw was that day. There was a sacrifice. Blood was shed in order to cover man's sin in the garden. We see God's love. We saw His mercy. I mean, He could in that moment just squash Adam and Eve like a bug and start all over again. But He says, I will give them a chance to rest for restoration. A death is required though because sin has taken place. And so I will make a sacrifice. Again, foretelling the cross when Jesus will come some 4,000 years later to finally take away their sins. But He foretells us through this animal. And then He takes this, the hide of the animal and He puts on this clothing and saying, your acts, your own efforts, your own, your own stuff is not, never going to deal with your sins and your shame. So I'm going to take it off and I am going to provide the solution. I am going to give to you what you need. And it's going to come in the form of a sacrifice. And my sacrifice will deal with your sins and your shame. And so God's our answer. His life, His love that He gives to us can set you and I free from this shame. To know that I'm loved. That I can now be naked before you. And whether you accept me or not doesn't change how loved I am. It doesn't change how acceptable I am. That's the great gospel we have. That I can now walk around with no fear. No fear of man. No fear of rejection. I no longer have to control you, manipulate you, get you to love me, get you to think good of me. I'm okay. I'm at peace. And so in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, for Christ also once suffered for sins, the, uh, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, bringing, indeed being put to death in the flesh, but being, being made alive in the Spirit. It was through the cross, through Jesus Christ, the great moment of all history where God restored man. And what can happen in a community of grace where we realize this, it no longer becomes about, you know, you better readjust your fig leaf. You know, you're showing a bit. It's no longer about trying to reduce your sin, your shame. It's about knowing that you are loved. Removing fig leaves and depending upon Jesus Christ. And doing that by being a people that shares that same love and acceptance. You see, if I'm loved and accepted by God, how can I not love and accept you guys? Regardless of where you're at, who am I to withhold that? 
Why would I want to? I'm loved. And that's what a community of grace is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for loving us. Thank You for restoring us. And I pray, Father, that today we'll, each of us will have heard from You and will continue to hear from You as we leave. And You will begin to reveal what our fig leaves look like. For we all have them. For none of us have ever arrived and are completely restored to what life was like in the garden. We're all on a journey. And I pray, Father, in Your loving, gentle way, You will show us what our fig leaves look like. The ways that we've been trying to hide and protect, control, find life from other people, that we might find life in You instead. And that You would draw us into that deep, intimate relationship with You. Continue to call us, Father. And thank You for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.